Turn to John 8. We're going to read our text and we'll have you sit down. And we'll get into looking at Christ's words. So we're going to look um, over the next two weeks, um, 37 through 47, uh, but we're going to divide it up. There's so much here. And Jesus is continuing to have this conversation in John 8 um, with the religious leaders. But we're going to put all this together. Last time we were together in regard to John 8, it was back in December, and we looked at Um, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And so let's read 37 through 47. So I know that you are offspring of Abraham, and yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. And they answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children... You would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. And this is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. And they said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord. But he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God, and the reason that you do not hear them is that you are not of God. All of this section is kind of centered around language about Abraham. So the religious leaders are claiming their deep connection to Abraham, that that justifies that there's a guarantee that they have of eternal life because of, watch this, because of their physical heritage. Because they are related and of the family of Abraham, then that guarantees them salvation. And Jesus is going to tell them it gives you no guarantee whatsoever. Genetics aren't what get you into heaven. It is faith in the Son of God that does that. And so he, so there will be um, a lot of conversation over the next two to three weeks around Abraham. And we will begin to look at that um, uh, today and so but there's just some really important things here in light of 2020 and in light of uh, what happened in our country this week as well um, I've been significantly reminded of how relevant the scripture is that there are moments that the scripture records for us that took place 2,000 years ago um, that are taking place in our midst today the same kind of themes and the same kind of things here and so we will talk a little bit about that. If you're nervous as I say that, don't be. Um, But we're going to speak truthfully and honestly um, about what we see in the text here because it comes from the heart of Jesus. And so we're breaking this section up that we just read in either two weeks or three weeks depending on how things go. So Jesus is continuing to have this encounter with the Pharisees. Now for a while, going all the way back to John chapter 5, He has been in a confrontative relationship with them. It is ever-increasing, and as we come to John 8 here, it is really of a significant manner. It is on the heels of them wanting to stone a woman to death who who had been caught in the act of adultery, and Jesus speaks with them, and they go away, and, and all of this intensity of things is continuing to increase. When we come to John chapter 9 in a few weeks down the road, um, it even gets worse after he heals the blind man and, and the things that are, are connected with that. But there are just some important things for us to see. So this encounter from Christ with the religious leaders is for true believers to see this morning. And it's important for us to see, is there a way for us to look at others, not in a judgmental way, but is there a way to look in regard to lining things up with Scripture, those who are in the faith and those who are not of the faith? And what Jesus is going to do uh, 
in this section, he's going to give us some pretty clear indications of those who believe and don't believe. Now there are, say this from the outset, those who believe, I'm in the kingdom of God. I am in the family of God. I'm confident of that. And when we look at Scripture, we can honestly say that that statement, as bold as it may be, doesn't line up with their life. And so this is not a new theme. As a matter of fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, some of the most sobering words that are found in the New Testament are spoken by Jesus himself in regard to the theme that we'll look at today in the next couple of weeks. So you'll remember these words. This is Matthew chapter 7. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So stop and think about that for a moment. It is awesome to acknowledge his sovereign lordship and the greatness of who he is. But Jesus is saying, just saying and repeating that, Lord, Lord, does not mean that someone is a part of the kingdom of God. So how do you know? And so Jesus gives some more information there. But here's how you know. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, that's how you kind of know. So it's not enough to just sing the songs, lift the hands, say the words, but you've got to look at a life. Does the life bend in obedience to the words of God? And when a life over that life bends in obedience, then you look and you say, well, that's a pretty good indication that that's just not words that somebody's saying. They're saying words and they're living their life in, in line with what God's Word says. And then Jesus says, on that day, there'll be a day coming when many people will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Those are sobering words, are they not? So these are people who say the right things. They did the right things. I think casting out demons is a good thing. I think healing people is a good thing. I think prophesying in the name of Christ is an important thing. But it's not enough. We have to come to faith in Christ. And the evidence comes of that faith. And not that we don't make mistakes because we all do. But it comes in the evidence of our life, as Jesus says here, walking in obedience to him. Now, the Pharisees were not claiming to be Christ followers. They were actually claiming we don't have anything to really do with you because they just have been battling Christ since John chapter 5. But in their rejection of Jesus, they were giving a very clear indication that they were not only rejecting Jesus, but they were rejecting who? His father. Now, the Father had sent Jesus on this mission to rescue, and because it was the Father's perfect sovereign will to send His Son to rescue us and, and to speak the words of the Father, their rejection of Jesus was ultimately a rejection of the purpose of the Father, of the words of the Father, and the will of the Father and why He sent Jesus. They were not making that connection, but lovingly and confrontively, Jesus is trying to help them understand that they were about to miss a very significant thing that was happening and taking place in their lives. The Messiah had come. They are standing in his presence, and they had an opportunity to embrace Jesus and to give their life to Christ. So I want to do this as we begin. I want you to go back to John chapter 3 from John chapter 8, and we're going to work our way back up to John chapter 8 in a minute. But Jesus has been saying something over and over in the Gospel of John, and John has recorded it for us. He has been saying he has been sent by the Father, and to know Christ means that you know the Father. And so I want to give us some reminders of this, because it's really important as we walk through this section in John 8. So John 3, verse 35, and I'll tell you the addresses to go to, and we're going to work our way back up to John chapter 8, and just look at several perspectives of this so john three thirty five, the father loves the son 
And he's given all things into his hand, into the Son's hand. Go to John chapter 5, verse 17. And let's read 17 and 18. And again, just reminding us, Jesus is communicating this relationship between he and the Father that he had been sent by the Father to reveal the Father and to reveal the Father's will. John five seventeen, But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. And this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Now go to verse 23 of chapter 5. That all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. And whoever does not honor the Son, does not honor the Father who sent him. Let's just pause there for a moment. So Jesus is saying, I am to get the same equal honor as the Son of God, as the Father in heaven gets honor. I am to get the same equal honor. And then he says there, um, and whoever doesn't honor the Son, if you reject the Son... You're not honoring the Father who sent the Son. All right, go to chapter 6, verse 27. <clears throat> so Jesus says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him God the Father has set His seal. So the Father has sent Jesus. Jesus gives the food that we need for spiritual life. And the Father has given the ultimate approval of Jesus' life. Go to verse 37 of John 6. Jesus speaking says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Do you see this beautiful trusting relationship? So the Father gives to Jesus believers. The believers come. Jesus receives the believers. He will not cast them out. Neither will the Father not cast them out. And so the Father gives to Jesus believers. They come, and whoever comes, he doesn't cast out. Go to chapter 8 now, which is our chapter that we will spend our time in today, and go to verse 16. So Jesus, again, speaking of himself and the relationship of the Father. So he says, yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. And now he's going to tell us why his judgment's true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. So Jesus says, I've got this role to, to be a judge, but it's just not me, but it's my Father as well because I've come in His name, and He's going to judge, and I'm going to judge. We are one. And so Jesus is affirming that. And let's look at one more, verse 19. So they said to Him, Therefore, where is your Father? And Jesus answered them, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. Now, I could, have, I could have given multiple, multiple verses from John chapter 3 to John chapter 8. But the point is this. So Jesus is communicating in front of the religious leaders. If, if you say that you're a friend of Abraham, then you need to know this, that I'm the fulfillment of Abraham's promise, and you would treat me the way Abraham treated me back in Genesis chapter 18. When I came, and he greeted me, and he welcomed me, and you're not doing that. You are rejecting my words. And not only that, you're not like Abraham, but the Father sent me, the one that you claim to be so intimately connected with, he sent me to speak his words and to reveal who he is, and you're rejecting me. And so therefore, though you claim Abraham, and though you claim to be a son of the Heavenly Father, I'm here to tell you, you're not, and the evidence is tied to your rejection of me and my words. And so Jesus here is communicating to these religious leaders, watch, this, these are staggering words. These are men who have memorized as Pharisees Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Memorized it. 
could quote it. These are not atheists. These are not naturalists. These are not agnostics. These are not Darwinists. These are not Buddhists. These are men steeped in the Scripture who, by the way, from their heads are boxes holding the Scripture in them. Their tassels, everything about the impressive look and garb of what they are wearing said, we are men of the Scripture. And the living Word of God is standing in front of them and they are rejecting Him. So as we talk through this today, Jesus is giving us clear indication of not Christopher Hitchens or whatever popular anti-God person atheist is out there in the world today. He's not addressing atheists. He's addressing people who claim to be followers of God and he tells them, you're not. You're not followers because you're rejecting me. You see, Jesus becomes, and has always been for the last 2,000 years, he's the dividing mark of the whole world. There are only two families. There are those who are born of God and born from above who will spend eternity in heaven. And there are those who are born here who reject God and they will spend eternity separated from God in hell. Our culture tells us all the time, oh, there's multiple things. There's not multiple families of the earth. There are two families. Those who are in the family of God through Christ, through faith, by grace, not by works. And there are those who have rejected that or are confused by that. So Jesus is making a real clear delineation of those who are in and those who are out. He has already told them in John chapter 8, verse 23, Um, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Um, And this is why it is so critical for us to not make much of this world. This world, outside of hearing the gospel, offers us nothing for the next life. Nothing, nothing. Own all the cars you want, own all the houses you want, have vacation homes. God's not impressed. It's not building, we're not building things in this world to get us into the next world. We can't happen. It only happens through the blood of Jesus. So as we look at this, I want to say these words to myself because I'm about to communicate some very strong things that are Jesus' words here, but they're going to be strong when you really think about them. So as we look at this over the next few weeks, I want to do so um, with great care. But I also don't want to lighten anything that's here. I don't want to soften it up. I want to declare it as Jesus declared it. Because, again, because he said these words, guess what we have to do? We have to deal with these words. We have to address them. And so they, they, they may make some uncomfortable or like, wow, that's really strong. But... Um, when you really look at what he's saying there, this is, this is what he is communicating. In case that's not enough, it's just all over the New Testament. So John, who's writing this gospel, later writes a letter that's five chapters, and he writes this in chapter 2. Um, these are pretty strong words. Listen to this. This is First John 2.15. Do not, do not love the things Do not love the world or the things in the world. If there is anyone who loves the world, listen to this, the love of the Father is not in that person. Now, that's that's not talking about, um, let me give an illustration. So, uh, last Wednesday night with the youth, we talked about uh, the law and talked about coveting in the law that's there. So I have a 2010 Toyota Tundra that I love. But sometimes when I'm driving down the highway and a 2020 Tundra passes me, I go, boy, that would be nice. That would be nice. So we're not talking about moments on the highway where we have a sinful thought and have a sinful desire. We're not not talking about the reality, but we're talking about people 
steeped in loving the world. Just ignoring God, living, but also at the same time claiming Christianity. And so, so John says, if anybody is steeped in loving the world, you can know this, the love of the Father is not in that person. It, it's not. That's what John says. So verse 16, he says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, that is not of the Father. It is from the world, John says. And in 17, Verse 17, he says, the world is passing away and all of its desires to make much of the world. It is passing away. But watch this, right in line with what Jesus says in Matthew 5 and right in line with what Jesus is telling and speaking, John 8. But whoever does the will, walks with God and lives and seeks to honor him and be obedient, whoever does the will of God abides forever. So as we start to wade into these important matters, let me make an initial overarching statement. Many false disciples feel they are truly pursuing God, protecting God, but in actuality, according to Jesus, they were following Satan because they are not born from above. That's the heart of John 37 through 44 that there are those who are in who think they are in but they are not and so again it just remind us the people we are looking at are not naturalists they are not humanists they are not evolutionists they are not darwinists they are not agnostics they are not atheists but they are men steeped in religious study training and practice and religious study about the coming of the messiah who's standing in front of them So if you don't think people can be in the church and be duped and fooled, the Scripture would say otherwise, that people can be. So let's talk about this important subject matter. How do we know? What are the marks of false disciples? Here's the first one. False disciples ultimately have no place for the Word of God in their lives. And so Jesus speaks that in verse 37. He says, I know, I acknowledge, you are genetically offspring of Abraham. You're connected to him. You're Jewish people. You have come from Abraham. You've come from one of the tribes. And then he makes this statement. And yet, these little words often are very important. Yet, I want to point out something about you. And yet, you seek to kill me. And here's the why you want to kill me. Because my words, they find no place in your life. You want to have nothing to do with what I'm saying and calling you to. False disciples always depend on their word and their work to be in a right relationship with God and to keep them in that relationship. It is a mark of that. Everything is works-based. And if we go back, we see that Jesus... Back in December, when we looked at this in verse 33, um, they say, We are offspring of Abraham. We have never been enslaved to anyone. So how is it that you say that we will become free? Because he tells them, um, if you know the Son, you will be free indeed. And so they, they answer him back and say, what are you talking about? We're children of Abraham. We have never been enslaved to anyone. And I asked the question back in December that's important. When you look at Israel's history... All they had been was enslaved almost. Why? Because they had consistently rejected the word of God and what God had instructed them. And because of that, it allowed enemies to come in and to oppress them. That had been their history. It's easy. Maybe you're not a professional at it. But sometimes I can be a professional at justifying anything that I do. I can convince myself that it's okay. And here are these men whose history has been one of oppression, and they can stand before Jesus and accuse him of not telling the truth, but say, we have never been enslaved to anyone. Yeah, you have. How about Nebuchadnezzar? How about the Assyrians? How about the Philistines? How about the Babylonians? Consistently, this has been their case. So Jesus, again, acknowledges to them, yeah, I know you are physically related to Abraham, But watch this, but spiritually you are not. You're not spiritually related to Abraham. 
their works revealed this reality. So let's ask the question, why the text tells us, why did they want to kill Jesus? And Jesus tells them, because my word finds no place in you. So all of this anger that they have, all of this desire to kill him, flowed from a place where the Jews refused to allow the words of Jesus to have any kind of place and any kind of impact upon their lives. By the way, you can openly discuss murder and feel comfortable about it with Scripture dangling from your hair and your clothing when you refuse to reject the Scripture, when the Scripture is not your guide and it's not something in your life. And I'll also say this, very important. When someone claims to be a follower of Jesus and fights the Word of God at every turn, Jesus says here, you're not a Christian. You're not a follower of me. Now, do we wrestle with Scripture? Absolutely. When it falls upon our life, it's difficult at times because it exposes the reality of who we are. But Jesus' words to them are this. You are giving indication that you are not children of Abraham. You are not children of the Father in your rejection of my words. Your rejection is doing that. And so, so when the rejection and the, of the teachings of Jesus are seen as a threat to a life or to a religious system, then that life or that religious system is not interested in biblical truth. But what's, what's a great mark of our lives? That we just love this, even in its difficult words to swallow. We want to conform, see our life conformed to this. And Jesus is telling them this is not the case. This is not the case because they were incredibly threatened by the truth. And this is a mark of false disciples. The truth exposes them. And so how do you get rid of the message? You get rid of the messenger. And so they're plotting to kill him. Now, we'll talk about this a little bit more in the days ahead. But this is where we are in our country right now. I am, like you, probably have watched 2020 and the beginning of 2021 with grave concern about our country. Not because of COVID, but because of many other things. I am for atheists having the right to say what they want to say in this country. And when a country begins to oppress free speech and makes decisions about who can say something and who cannot say something, we are seeing that in the text here. Why do they want to kill Jesus? Because they don't like the message. How do you get rid of the message? Well, you squelch and you kill and you destroy and you oppress the messenger. And if I had a bell this morning, I'd ring it. And I've been here now for 12 years. And have I not, those of you who've been here for 12 years, been saying this for 12 years, that this day was coming. And it's here. Now, I don't fully know the time frame and all of that, but I'm just here to tell you that when a government begins to, or other things begin to say what people can say, then we become Mao, Hitler, Castro. We become places like that. Or we become people like this. So because the words were being rejected, Jesus tells them, you're not in the family. You're not in the family. You're not children of Abraham. Because if, we'll, we'll look at this next week. We were going to look at it, but we can't get to point four because we're not going to have time today. But in Genesis chapter 18, there's something called a Christophany. It's an Old Testament appearance of Jesus. And he, Jesus shows up where Abraham and Sarah are living. And Abraham runs out and meets him and, watch, welcomes God into the camp. Welcomed him. And now, Jesus, next week we'll see this, is telling them, Abraham welcomed me, you're not welcoming me. You're claiming to be followers of Yahweh, 
and, and children of God, yet, and children of Abraham, and yet Abraham welcomed me back in Genesis 18 when I showed up at the camp. And now I've come as the Messiah in your midst, and you've not welcomed me. All you are doing is rejecting me. And so here's two huge marks. We'll have these up on the screen in regard to false disciples having no place for the Word of God in their life. And the first one is this. False disciples never let the Word of God confront their sin, ever. They fight it. My proof text of this is this one, but also back in John chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. Jesus said this after his encounter with Nicodemus. He said, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world And people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works be exposed. So false disciples ultimately looking at their life reject the truth of God's word falling on their life and confronting their sin. And secondly, true disciples are just the opposite. They let the word of God confront their sin because they want and know that that is necessary. So the very next words in John chapter 3, verse 21, Jesus says, whoever does what is true, you know what they do? They come to the light. They want to be in the light. They want the light to expose darkness because they know that the light is what they need so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So true believers allow the light of God's word to expose their sins so they can turn from them and grow in holiness. So let's pause here. And we're going to spend the majority of our rest of our time in point one. And here's why. Did you notice a while ago in those ten verses, Jesus said the same thing in a different way three times. And here's what he said. My words have no place in you. He says it three times in 37 through 47. This is ultimately one of the things that's the most critical thing in our lives is the Scripture. Why are we at the place we are at in our country today? Because I I think it's because we've just abandoned truth for feelings and all kinds of different things. And when you do that, you end up with the craziness um, that has taken place in our culture. But how is this done today in regard to Christianity? What do we see in regard to um, falseness within the church and and things of that nature? What does that look like? And I want to give several examples of this. There are whole denominations um, today who don't demand and hold their leaders accountable to the Scripture. You should every Sunday demand of me accurate teaching of the Scripture. And if it ever, if I ever lose my way, you have to hold me to that. The elders have to hold me to that. When you lose your way, I have to lovingly hold you to the way of the Scripture. And the church is to be a voice in a culture when the government or other institutions have lost their way. We are to the voice to speak toward that in regard to the truth. So how in the world do those who claim to be fathers of Jesus and yet have no place in their heart ultimately for the word of God? Where do we see that? And here's the first one I want to share this morning. This is pretty dominant in something called progressive Christianity uh, in the church today. And um, it's not the only aspect, but this is a big one. And it it is a denial of, that Genesis chapter 1 through 3 is not the truthful historical narrative of the Scripture. I wholeheartedly believe that my God has power to speak the world into existence in six days. He didn't need millions of years to do that. He's powerful enough to speak it into existence, and He's powerful enough to do it in six days and then to rest on the seventh day. If it is not history, if it is not truthfulness, if it is just something like allegory, then you can open up things to a more scientific evolutionary model which can then allow other ideas to be incorporated into the early pages of Scripture. Because ultimately, if the beginning pages cannot be trusted, 
Can you trust the rest of it? And I would say that you can't if you begin to just attack the initial pages of it. I believe Genesis 1 through 3 is absolutely critical for us in regard to beginning to understand the rest of Scripture. Because in it we get great definition and so our, our, about who God is. And I believe it's why I believe the first three chapters have been consistently, over the last several hundred years, consistently attacked. Because it sh- if you can throw shade on that and begin to diminish what's revealed in those first three chapters, then you can begin to attack the rest of the revelation of Scripture. Here's what we learn in those first three chapters. In the beginning, God. So before anything was, God was what? He was pre-existent and self-existent. He didn't need anything else. Um, Secondly or thirdly, he defines in Genesis 1 what is good. He speaks, he creates, and then he says it's good. He is the definer of good, not man. So when God in the creative order says this is good, then everything that he did was a def- he was defining for us what goodness and godliness and God-centeredness looked like. That means creation. It was good. That means gender was good. There's only two genders. There aren't a thousand, there aren't three hundred, or whatever anybody says. There is male and female. God established that reality. That is the continued reality so he establishes what marriage looks like a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife he doesn't stay connected to the parents and the parents tell that new marriage what to do here's the definition of what that looks like in genesis chapter one we also learn in genesis chapter three what sin is how do you define sin well it's defined for us in living reality in Genesis chapter 3. It's when we decide to be our own God and we do our own thing and we rebel against God. We learn much in Genesis 1 through 3 about the nature of God. We learn that he's incredibly graceful in Genesis 3. He came to the garden full well knowing what Adam and Eve had already done. So we learn a lot. So there's one thing. There is a great denial today that Genesis 1 through 3 is not the truthful historical narrative. Secondly, there is a huge push today to deny the supernatural for the natural. If you can get rid of the notion or the idea of the supernatural or miracles, then what you ultimately have is a thoroughly humanistic approach to life. You have karma You have accidents instead of God's providence or that we are in control of things and how they turn out because we are powerful and we have great wisdom. It is a man-centered idea, not a God-centered one. Here's the third way false disciples ultimately begin to share and reveal that they have no place for the Word of God is that we deny that God is still ongoing the creator of this world. How can you slaughter unborn children and not think anything of it? Yeah, darkness pervades, but you can do that when you deny that God is still creating children. Yeah, but what about this situation where this horrible thing happened and now there's a life growing in that woman's womb? Yeah, that was horrible, but that's a life. The Netherlands, this year in 2020, I don't know if you saw it or not, passed a bill that allows the slaughtering, once you find out if you have a Down syndrome children, it's almost become law to kill that child because they're trying to eradicate Down syndrome children. You ever been around a Down syndrome person? They are the most wonderful people in the world. We have one that lives next door to us, Aslan. She's the greatest thing in the world. She makes me smile every time she's out. So you can do that when you deny that God's the creator still. I see beautiful, handsome people in this room this morning, all made in the image of God. Your life has value. 
Not because, let me just say this, your life would not have value if it was grounded in what I thought of you or what culture thinks of you. But because our life has been made in the image of God by the Creator, we have such intrinsic value made in His image. You know, the leading death worldwide in 2020 in the midst of all of our COVID scare about death was abortion. 42.5 million children were slaughtered in 2020. So you can do that and we can just continue, Christians continue to go on with their life and I know you're not that way. We hear these news and it breaks us. We cry out to God and say, God, um, forgive us that we have allowed this to be the norm. But if you deny that God is still the ongoing creator, then you can have as many genders as you want. You can say that homosexuality is compatible with biblical teaching, and therefore Christians are homophobic if they oppose it. A fourth place that's just really dominant is there's a big denial of absolute truth in our culture. And it's deeply ingrained in many denominations as well. There are denominations today in our country that are gathering in rooms like this. And they'll read from this, but they don't believe it. I don't know, I don't know what they're doing. I don't know what your purpose is. I'd rather play disc golf if I didn't believe this. I'll just honestly put it to you. I would. If you can undermine absolute truth, then any of you can be acceptable for truth is just what I feel in the moment or how I see things. And this goes at the heart. I think the denial ultimately, I think the denial of ultimate truth ultimately goes to the heart of being able to call something sin. Because if there's just all truth is truth or anything that I feel is truth, then you can't really point something out that is sin. Here's the fifth thing that is really dangerous in the last one. It's the watering down and the diluting of the truth by the church. Or by ministries or by bloggers or pastors. This practice has been in and around the church for the last four decades in our country strongly. Where psychology and self-esteem preaching became the dominant theme. In churches, and there was the melding of these worldly ideas um, with biblical teaching that ministers and seminaries thought was a good model. One of the leading churches in this in Chicago, Willow Creek, had conference after conference for almost three decades, and they did a study at the end of the three decades of their church. And you know what they discovered? A big, extensive doctrinal study. They found that none of their people knew the Bible. Because Sunday after Sunday, they showed up, and it was man-centered psychology preaching. And so nobody knew the Scripture. People made confessions. People sang the songs. People clapped the claps. People did the fellowship. People went to the classes. But nobody knew the Lord. And so they made a big dramatic change when they recognized this. Man is not to ever be the center of the sermon. The Father, Son, and the Spirit. And we must preach sermons that are Christ-exalting above everything. And in addition, here's where church or denomination arrives that rejects or waters down biblical truth. Unbiblical revelations begin to have the greater place over the written text of the Scripture. So somebody just says, hey, the Lord told me this. Or the Lord said this, or I was walking on the mountain and the Lord showed me this, and then it's elevated to be equal with Scripture. Now, I believe God reveals things to us in this life, but they, if they do not ever line up with the written revelation of Scripture, they are not truth. Just not truth. Can't be truth. Scripture is our highest our highest guide to understand what is true. So when you dilute the purity and the teaching of Scripture in time, you end up 
with those who claim to be following Jesus, but who also think that you can follow the world at the same time, that you can have both of those. And Jesus said, well, that neglects what I told you. No one can serve two masters. For he will hate one or love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And by the way, if you haven't noticed, everything in this world has to do with money. Ultimately, you trace it back. It's connected to it. So when institutions and culture love the world as master, they will, watch, hate those who oppose that viewpoint. So you shut up the messenger because you hate the message. In the blatant reaction or rejection of the religious leaders, Jesus is saying was proof positive they were not like Abraham at all. In John 8, 31, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Spurgeon said something incredible about the word of God. He wrote this, the word of God ought to have an inward place in us. The word of God ought to have a high place of honor in our lives. The word of God ought to have a place of trust in our lives. The word of God ought to have a place of rule in our life. It's, it's what, what says right, wrong. And, um, the Word of God, he said, ought to have a place of love in our lives. We ought to love the Word of God. And then lastly, he said, the Word of God ought to have a permanent place, not a temporary one in our lives. So why did I spend, and I looked at the clock a while ago, 15 minutes on point one? Here's why. The most critical thing in our lives is our understanding of the nature of God. And the only way to know the nature of God and who God is, is here. And again, Jesus is saying these words to people who have memorized the first five books of the Old Testament. And if you've read those books, they all, those laws and things, they point, many of them point to the one who's standing in front of them. The glory of God in their midst. And He became flesh, and the Word became flesh, and tabernacle dwelt among us. The glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1.14. And He's right there in front of them, and they are fighting Him and wanting to quelch and murder the messenger because they don't like the message. So just a couple more things this morning and we will be done and we'll get back into this. But three times in 37 through 47, Jesus says, it's the words, it's the words of God that you are rejecting. And here's what the thing is. Listen, Jesus' great role sent by the Father, yes, to redeem us, but also to reveal the glory of the Father. That's why the writer in Hebrews chapter 1 wrote these words. He, Jesus, is the radiance, the shining glory and essence of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of His nature. So you want to know who this glorious, loving Father is? You look at Jesus in the pages of the Scripture. So He came to reveal the glory of the Father. He came sent by the Father to redeem and to teach and to love and to heal and to do all of these things. And now the religious leaders are like, we don't like what you are saying. We just read a while ago about eight verses where Jesus says and repeats it, I and the Father are one. He just says it in all kind of multiple ways. He also said this over and over. Watch, remember, listen to this, don't miss this. I only say what the Father says. And I only do what I see the Father do. So now he's standing before them and he's saying, you're rejecting my words. And so therefore, guess whose words you are rejecting, Pharisees? You're rejecting the one who sent me. You're rejecting my Father's words. Here's the second principle. False disciples, according to Jesus, they don't know the image of the Father because they don't know Jesus. So he says, I speak of what I have seen 
with my Father. And I find such great encouragement today. And I hope, I want to try and encourage and lift your heart for a moment here. Jesus is an eyewitness of the glory of the Father. How? Well, they've been living together since anything ever was. He had heard the Father speak. I don't know how many years, however long it was. He knew the Father's heart. He knew the Father's face. He knew the Father's words. So when he came here, when he speaks these words, he's speaking the words of his Father, giving to us things to equip us to know the Father. And I love the fact that the great passion of Jesus was to reveal the Father. And because that was his great passion, we can trust what has come to us because he's not, did you notice what he says there? What I have seen. I'm an eyewitness of this, not just what I heard, but I have seen what my Father said. I've seen what my Father does, and now I've come to make this known to you. So Jesus brought to the earth in His coming not all of His opinions, but all that He had seen and heard from His Father. He had a God-centered message that came from a God-centered divine experience in His intimate relationship with His Father. And He came to reveal the Father to us. And so his presence in first century Israel was the most unique thing in the history of the world. In the times past, God would tell a prophet, here's what I want you to say. The prophet would go out and speak. But now, 2,000 years ago, God had come himself and was revealing in Jesus, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, communicating what he had seen from his Father. And we can trust what Jesus communicates to us. And that should lift our hearts today. So when he says, I'm going away to prepare a place for you, and you need to know this, because I'm going away, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to come back, and I'm going to take you to be with me. Whose words originally were that? The Father's. What is Jesus communicating? Of the Father's words, he's communicating, this is what I'm going to do. This is the unity that the Father, Son, and the Spirit have. This is who I'm going to be. When you take the gospel to the nations, guess what? I'm going to be with you always until the ends of the earth. You will never be alone. 365 times in the Bible we are told not to fear and not worry. We've done enough of that this year. Trust the words of God. You see, in Jesus, we get the fullest revelation of truth in the exact way that God sees truth. That's why being steeped into the Scripture is so critical for us. And so in this perspective that we are so desperately in need of, the Word of God, we need that because we have had enough of man's words. I don't know about you, but I have. I've had enough of man's words, and I've had enough about man's opinion about truth. And I want his words to guide my life and guide your life and shape everything. And one of the things that should usher in such confidence in our faith is that Jesus' great passion was this revelation and making the revelation of the Father known to us. And so as he spoke of the Father, he was always speaking from firsthand knowledge. So when he talks about the Father gives good gifts, when he talks about the Father when a prodigal son had gone away and and wrecked his inheritance of the father, and he comes back home. When Jesus tells the story that that father runs from the house and greets that prodigal son on the road and kisses him and kills the fattened calf, Jesus is telling us something that should lift our hearts, that should encourage us. When he tells us that when we go into our room to pray and we pour our heart out into our closet, that the Father sees us what we do in secret and He rewards those. When we give to the poor and the needy, we don't let our right hand know what our left hand is doing. And when we give, we give in secret. And the Father who sees what is done in secret, He rewards. Jesus tells us that the Father is this great rewarder. You don't need man's applause, Jesus said. Just do what's right and the heavenly father who is so good that if a son came if an earthly father had a son come and said father i'm hungry he wouldn't give him a stone he'd give him bread 
Where if the son came and said, I need a fish to eat, he wouldn't give him a snake. He'd give him a fish. And so if your heavenly father, if an earthly father knows how to do good things like that, how much more, Jesus said, will your heavenly father give to those who love him and trust him? Let's close with this. True disciples know the Father through Jesus. And the only way that can happen is to read the Scripture. In our country today, we have two things connected to the word progressive. There are progressive politics and there is something in our country today called progressive Christianity. It's not really Christianity, but it gets linked together, and it's incredibly dangerous. You would think the words progressing should be good. Things progress, get better. But progressive politics and progressive Christianity doesn't make anything better because here's what they do. They abandon the established tenets of what they're trying to do. So the problem in our country today in regard to the church with progressive Christianity is when you go back to point one, just five of those things that I could have shared more is, is an abandonment of historic Christianity. And I just, I want to strongly say this this morning, there is not anybody on this planet in 2021 that is smarter than the Holy Spirit's written revelation of Scripture that stands the test of time. We are not finding new truth that negates the written revelation of Scripture. It stood for 2,000 years, and it will abide forever. I read late last night. I was up praying, and sometimes you're probably like me. It's uh, Google's a black hole of reading things. But I stumbled upon something last night. I'm going to do a little more research, but there's an archaeologist in Israel where Herod lived that they believe they found the actual throne room where Herod's daughter-in-law did that dance that cost John the Baptist his life. They think they've actually found the very place where she danced and that decision was made. Archaeology in Israel, they are doing tons of stuff right now. They are consistently finding things over and over that validate this. Now, archaeology doesn't get risen to the level of this. But we can take great comfort that things that are in here are being found today in Israel. So my, my heart this morning um, in sharing these words of Jesus and pointing out some practical things is to say to us, we need to return or stay connected to our roots. We're not waiting for some new thing to come along. They have been coming along for 2,000 years. And they don't stand. They go away. They fade. This year, there'll be a new church trend that will go out there, get on board with this. And I'm just here to say today there's one trend. This one trend. Because it's the trend Jesus told us to do. The truth sets, the truth sets you free. And the truth allows you to find the Son. And when you find the Son, you will be free indeed. But if you reject the Son... You'll, you'll reject the words that you need in your life and you will reject the Father who has sent the Son. You'll reject Him and you will miss out on everything. And we'll start next week with this reality that if God's not your heavenly Father, since there's only two families, guess who your Father is? Satan. Why? Why do nations make laws to slaughter unborn children? You know why they do? Because those nations have as their father, Satan. Why in over the next hundred days it's been proclaimed that what's going to be instituted is equal rights 
for any kind of sexual perversion that you want. And then eventually what's going to come is that as we speak about that, there will be court, there will be court cases to set precedent that eventually, and I don't, I'm not putting timetable, but I'm just telling you, for 12 years I've been saying we need to get ready for this, and I want to ring the bell this morning to say it's here. This week we saw the extreme oppression of speech in this country. And again, I'm for, I'm for people being able to speak their mind. You know, Christianity is very unique. Our, attack, our, our Jesus and our faith gets attacked all the time, and you know what we do? We work with words and the truth to try to convince people that they're, that they're missing out and they don't understand Jesus. For most of the religions of the world, what do they do toward Christians? They're deeply threatened, and so you kill Christians. In India right now, they are slaughtering pastors by the dozens. Just slaughtering them. Read an article in Voice of the Martyrs last night. So I, I'm not trying to scare anybody this morning, and I, but I just need you to know it's here. And I think the refining of the church is going to be a good thing, but it may not be the most comfortable thing like we're used to. I'm with you. I hope you're with me, and I hope we're in this together to continue to speak the truth. That's what Jesus did. That's what he practiced. And let's do that. Let's embrace that hopeful reality of the truth. So we'll get back. Yeah, I don't want to apologize for, I had 10 pages of notes. I got through four of them. But we'll get back to those next week. All right, let's pray.